hard questions, honest answers. And this morning, we're going to talk about uh, the question, why are so many scientists coming to Christ? Now, when I ask that question, uh, you may think, really? I mean, are, are there many scientists who are coming to Christ? Because I don't, I don't hear about that in the news. And what uh, my claim is this morning is that this is a movement that has begun long before the year 2016, and I want to share a little bit about why that's the case. But to begin with, I want to take you to upstate New York in the late 1800s. I want to take you back to two college campuses, one in New York School of Medicine and the other one to Cornell, and I want to tell you about two people. Uh, the first one is a guy by the name of, of John William Draper, and John William Draper was a scientist who specialized in chemistry. He's the first guy who actually took a valid picture of the moon, and how he did that was really quite remarkable. He wrote a book uh, in 1874 called The History of the Conflict Between uh, Religion and Science. Now, this was shortly after he founded the New York School of Medicine. And this book took the intellectual world by storm. It went through 50 printings in the United States, and it was translated into 10 languages. People were snapping up this book because it, it gave a thesis. And the thesis was that the human intellect has always yearned for science and truth. However, humans for thousands of years have been stymied by religion because religious leaders would dogmatically say, you can't do your religion. You can't do your science because our religion tells you that it's gonna be wrong. And so he founded the conflict theory of science and religion. Well, 20 years later, uh, Andrew B. White, the founder of Cornell University, uh, ratcheted up the rhetoric one notch. Now, this guy was an interesting guy. He was very, very well educated. He went to uh, the University of Paris. He went to Berlin. He was gra a graduate of Yale University. He came back and he was a state senator in New York, very successful businessman. And when Ezra Cornell approached him and said, I want to endow a university, Andrew White was all over it. And he became the founder and the first president of Cornell. And White said this, quote, Cornell should be an asylum for science, where truth shall be taught for truth's sake and not stretched or cut into revealed religion. Now, so you have two, two men who are writing about the conflict, the perceived conflict between science and religion. Two men who were very well-known and uh, two men whose books took the intellectual world by storm. I want you to think about, about th their ideas. In 1874, there was the conflict thesis, and in 1896, there was the warfare thesis. Now, why do we give you this little history lesson? The reason why is because their ideas have filtered into pop culture to such an extent that while you may have never read their books or heard their names, you embrace their ideas. These books were taught in elementary philosophy of science classes, elementary history of science classes, for year, up, up, really up until the 1950s. Uh, Carl Sagan, who was the guy who did the Cosmos series many years ago, 
He was a big believer in these two guys and had read these two, these two books. You haven't heard their names. You haven't read their books. And yet you probably, in the back of your mind, embrace the ideas that they came up with. And guess what? They are totally, completely wrong. Every history of science scholar uh, says they're wrong. Everybody who writes in the philosophy of science says these two guys were just plain, factually, flat-out wrong. And yet, and yet, the idea still remains. So much so that uh, who do we interview when we want to interview somebody about science? Well, we interview famous smart guys like, like this guy, famous smart guy, Stephen Hawking. 1988, he wrote, the, wrote a book and he said, a unifying theory of science will help mankind know the mind of God. Oh, so Hawking's a believer in God. 2014, he says, if we had a unified theory, we would know everything that God would know. If there was a God, which there isn't, which is why I'm an atheist. And I look at that statement and I think, okay, here's a, a, a very, very intelligent person making a statement which is not a very well-reasoned statement. But these are the guys that we interview as scientists, people who are agnostics or atheists. Okay, we got Bill Nye, the science guy, who occasionally goes on rants and screeds about religion. And then we have Carl Sagan, the cosmos guy. So who, who are the people that we look to in pop culture for information about science? Well, we sort of celebrate those people who are not of faith. We certainly don't celebrate those people who are of faith, and yet, every once in a while, things will pop up that are of immense interest, like this one. God discovered in five minutes, God is real, MIT scientists find conclusive scientific evidence to dis on the discovery of God. Um, that's, this is a very, very interesting article. Didn't get a lot of traction. Most people didn't, didn't you know, know a whole lot about this. Or you've got this by, about Alan Sandage, Science Finds God. Alan Sandage goes from atheist to follower of Christ precisely because of the evidence that he was finding in science. So many interesting things are happening today, especially among physicists who see design at the subcellular, subatomic level, and they're saying, there's got to be infinite intelligence out there there's got to be. We see evidence of it all over the place in subatomic science. So what I want to do this morning is, is talk about the relationship between science and religion. And I want to ask and answer three questions. And the first question is this. First question is, does a biblical worldview support scientific inquiry? Does it support and has it supported scientific inquiry? Because a lot of people will, will, will say, no, it, it really does not. It, it sort of crushes scientific inquiry. So let me talk first about, about science. Basic scientific methodology is you develop a hypothesis, then you make some initial observations, you revise your hypothesis, you might develop some testable predictions, you gather more data, you discover connections, you might have some conclusions that suggest further study. These are some of the steps that scientists go through as they're doing studies and making observations. However, 
Scientific methodology does not prove what is unseen. Science, properly speaking, only is the observation interpretation of data that can be repeated. And so science is not going to be able to conclusively prove or disprove the existence of unseen things like the existence of God. But science will often take a pre-existing worldview and assume that to be true before they do their science. So we have to go back to worldviews. So here's the initial assumption, and you have to ask the question, what's my initial assumption about the nature of reality? Is there a God? Is there not a God? What kind of God might he be? Well, the worldview lens is the lens through which you see those assumptions, and then you develop your scientific methodology. So science, scientists always come at their science with pre-existing ideas about the nature of reality. The question is, did the biblical worldview support sound scientific thinking? And my, my argument would be, yes, it did. Here's why. Genesis 1, 1 through 11. Number one is that God is personal. God is personal. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a very interesting statement because if you knew nothing about the Bible and read this in Hebrew, it, is, it would sound weird. The reason why is the term Elohim is a plural form, which means gods. In the beginning, literally, it would say gods created hev the heavens and the earth. However, the verb is singular. So the idea is there is some sort of a plurality in God, but God as a, a person acts and he does something he creates. From the very beginning, we see a plurality within the Godhead, which we understand to be the Trinity. That continues in Genesis 1.27, where it says, let us create humans in our image. So early uh, students of the Bible recognize that not only is God a personal God, but to a certain extent, there was a plurality within that person of God. And when he created, he created in community. Well, here's the kicker. This God is separate from his creation. And that means if I study the creation, I'm not going to offend God. He's separate from it. It's the product of his handiwork. If I uh, create as an artist, if, I'm not an artist, but if I could create something artistically, and somebody investigated it, I, I'd feel pretty good about it. I wouldn't mind. But, it, but if, if I am the art and people are pawing at me... I'd be offended. Well, the early, uh, early scientists were, were, were realizing if God is separate from his creation, we can study his creation without fear that he will be offended. More on that in a second. Here's the second worldview idea. God is powerful, infinitely powerful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That term heavens and the earth is a common 
Hebrew figure of speech called a merism. In a merism, you take the polar opposites, uh, two polar opposites to mean these two things and everything in between. So when he says God created the heavens and the earth, he's saying God created all matter. He created everything, everything that can be known and seen and appreciated. He created, he created everything. Well, how powerful must this personal God be if he created everything? Now look, the ancient, ancient scientists understood something of the power of God. They, they, they knew a lot more than we think we knew. You know, Isaiah understood the sphericity of the earth in, in the 6th century B.C. He, he, I mean, we, we've known the world is round since the 6th century B.C. Pythagoras described the roundness, the sphericity of the earth in the 5th century B.C. Eratosthenes worked out the dimensions of the spherical earth in the 3rd century B.C. The, you know, this myth that people thought the earth was flat came from Andrew Dixon White and the two books I mentioned at the very beginning. It was a 19th century uh, propaganda. Um, but the ancients did not know just how big the universe was. They knew it was big. They could chart the stars in the heavens. They didn't know how big. And the more people have understood the bigness of the universe, the more we get a picture into the power of God. And that's one of the things that fueled early science. More discoveries made them realize how awesome and amazing God was. Not only, not only that, but the powerful personal God um, meant that if God is powerful in the heavens, and He's powerful in botany, and He's powerful in things that are very small, His power extends to every realm of the universe. That was an encouragement for early scientists. Here's a third idea. God must be uh, also eternal. The God who created must have created from outside of time. He's eternal, not in time. He's outside of time. That was significant for early uh, scientists because Aristotle believed the universe was eternal. Now, I want you to think about this. The belief in the eternality of the universe lasted from the time of Aristotle through the 1950s with Fred Hoyle and the steady state theory of the universe. That, that's a long time. A lot of people believe the universe was eternal, and if it's eternal, maybe it has no transcendent purpose. But the early scientists who embraced the scriptures, they said, look, if God began the universe, and it has a beginning, and presumably it has an end, and it has a middle, we're going somewhere. There's purpose to this creation, and therefore we, we should see in our science evidences of purposefulness, teleology in creation. We see this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your fathers in heaven. For, now here's a worldview statement about worldview and science. 
He makes his son rise. Okay? Now look, back then, everybody knew <laughs> about the rotation of the earth. That was being developed. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's talking about the regularity of things that we know from science. That purposeful thing that we see in science actually shows that there is purpose in moral areas like loving our enemies as well. So early scientists embraced a purposeful view of the universe based upon God's eternality. Here's a fourth worldview idea uh, that relates to science, and that is that God created a highly structured universe. Now, if you are a young earth creationist, or if you are an old earth creationist, uh, young and old both admit that in Genesis chapter 1 through 31, there is a clear structure, okay? And here's the structure. Day one, God creates light. On day four, God creates lights, plural. Day two, God creates waters in the sea and waters in the heavens. Day five, God creates the fish in the sea and the fowl in the air. On day uh, three, God creates earth, land, and vegetation. On day six, God creates land creatures and, eating, uh, and, and c commands the eating of the vegetation that's there. So what does the structure mean? Well, the structure means that in days one through three, God forms space, and in days four through six, God fills space. Now, a lot of early biblical scholars understood that. They understood that Genesis 1 through 31 conveys a worldview. It's not scientific language per se. It conveys a worldview. And the worldview is that God creates and He fills. He forms and He fills. He forms and He, and he fashions. Now, what the early scientists did with that was they said, look, um, if God is a, an ordering, orderly creator, then the science we do in, in Greece can also be done in Italy. And the science we do in Italy can also be done in China. And the science we do in China can also be done in, in New York. They weren't saying that because it wasn't in New York back then. But you, you get the idea. The idea was there is a uniformity about science that can be done anywhere. This was so different than the worldview of the ancients. If you read Homer, you realize that Zeus and all the other sub-gods underneath Zeus could be highly offended if you did something wrong, highly offended. And therefore, you know, Odysseus is having a hard time getting back home to Penelope, his wife, and Telemachus, his son, and to his dog, because the gods have been offended against Odysseus. Well, the early scientists said, that's, you know, that's just not right. <laughs> you know, God's an infinite personal God, and He creates in an orderly way. He is not going to be offended if we study His creation. And to top it all off, what's really cool is that God invites empirical study. What did God tell Adam to do? Genesis 2, 19-20. God formed the animals, um, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and so on and so forth. 
What is God asking Adam to do before he gives him a wife? He's asking him to play the role of a scientist. The idea is that, Adam, I want you to investigate the animals. What are these animals good for? Okay, I want you to put names to these animals. Oh, look, there is uh, an animal with a long nose. That's an anteater. Huh, there's a, there's a big animal in a river. I'm going to call him a river horse, a hippopotamus. He, obviously, he didn't, it was, didn't work that, like that. But God is giving Adam a command that we would call zoology, the taxonomy of and the naming of animals. Well, if God is asking the first human to do that, then wouldn't it make sense that we as scientists can do empirical study and understand what the world is really like? So Genesis 1 through 11 uh, gave scientists a clear understanding about the worldview. So the idea, if God's personal, then I can study him without fear of offending him. If God is powerful, I can just expect to find creativity and beauty in his creation. If God is eternal, then the universe is going someplace, and I can expect to find evidences of purpose in his creation. If God is orderly, then experimentation is possible. And if God uh, commands empirical study, then we humans have the capacity of doing empirical study. Now, that's the worldview idea. But it's not just worldview, because look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Hey, is that a worldview statement? Yes, it is. But it's more than just a worldview statement. It's a statement of worship. Because for the early biblical scientists, the early scientists, and we'll talk about them in a second, when they did their empirical scientific study, it wasn't just to know truth, it was to celebrate the truth that they were discovering. So we see this in Psalm 19, verse 1, day-to-day pours out speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, what's the voice? The voice of the heavens that are declaring the glory of God. Their voice goes through all all the earth and the words to the end of the world. What he's talking about is the beauty of nature that can be studied. Now, here's where the worship part comes in. Um, If the skies, in the skies, God has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man. The sun runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit is to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now, I have heard people who have been agnostics and atheists say, look at that, look at that. Those people who wrote that didn't know that the sun is at the center of the solar system. They're so primitive. They didn't understand any of that until modern science came along and corrected their faulty view. Those people who say that don't know the history of biblical, um, history of science for sure, or the history of biblical interpretation. What they're doing is they're celebrating in artistic form what they knew to be true scientifically. That's why I sometimes say to people, look, if, if you think the ancients believe that about the sun, 
then maybe you think Louis Armstrong believed that in his song, Lucky Old Son, which is a great song, by the way. I love that song. Louis Armstrong certainly didn't think, nor did the authors of that song think, that the sun was lucky because it just gets to roll around heaven all day. They didn't think that. They didn't think that. They're celebrating something artistically. And the biblical authors are celebrating what they know about nature in a wonderfully artistic sort of a way. One of the arguments against uh, Christianity is that, well, you know, Christians don't really, really properly appreciate science because they don't, you know, they, they import all their religion into it. And if you read guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and others, what Tolkien and Lewis are saying is, no, it's the Christians who do understand science. They just choose to also then celebrate it as a gift from God. Now, we want to take a hard, a hard sharp turn into, from the Bible into history. Second question is, um, how did modern science develop? Well, I want to take you back to Harvard University. The year is 1925, and the guy that I want to introduce you to is Alfred North Whitehead. Whitehead said this in his quote that was then turned into a book called Science in the Modern World. Faith in the possibility of science came about before the development of modern scientific theory. What he was saying is you're not going to do science if you don't think science can be done. What you need is a worldview shift. He said faith in the possibility of science is sourced in developments in medieval theology. Now, when he, he said this, people were like, what? This was 50 years after White and Draper had written their two books. This was not what, uh, this is actually... Uh, 50 years after White and, and maybe 25 years after Draper, this was not what scientists were saying. And this is a guy who had written books with Bertrand Russell, the Cambridge atheist. So he's saying, look, science came about through people in the medieval, the Middle Ages. Now, people are like, what? are you kidding me? Middle Ages? That, that, that was like a backward time. I mean, nobody did good things in the Middle Ages, did they? And Whitehead is, says, is saying, yes. And Whitehead is saying this as a philosopher of science. So let me highlight four scientists in the Middle Ages who were instrumental. The first was more a theologian than a scientist, but he created the possibility of science. One of my favorite people, St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, 354 through 430. Here's what Augustine said. Augustine said, first of all, there is a unity to truth. There's not one truth for theology and another truth for science and another truth for mathematics and another truth for you name it. Truth is truth. There is a unity of truth. All truth is God's truth. Number two, he said there were two books. One book is revealed from God. It's the Word of God, it's the Bible. That's one, that's one book of truth. The other book of truth is nature. Nature is another book of truth. We see God revealed in nature. What he is saying is that science and scriptures are not going to contradict themselves. Easy for him to say, 
He's writing in the early medieval period, the late antique period, where nobody had done science yet. So he's writing this as a theologian. The third thing he said was that science and scripture are interpreted in essentially the same way, using sound principles of interpretation. I cannot tell you how powerful Augustine's influence was on the future of science. It's just mind-boggling to read about how people would go back to Augustine. So who's the next scientist I want to tell you about? Here's a guy named Robert Grosstest, 1168 to 1253. Look, if, you, if, you're, if the best picture of you is in stained glass, you know you were a pretty, pretty awesome person. And, and the best picture I could find of him was in stained glass. Um, <clears throat> Grosstest was a brilliant student, math mathematician, scientist, and linguist, and he was a committed Christian. He went to Oxford in, in about the year 1200. He then became the bishop of Lincoln, the largest diocese in England. He made major discoveries in the area of physics, oceanography, optics, and astronomy. I'd be happy for distinction in one area, maybe two areas. All right, we're talking, what, oceanography and astronomy, both? He's making major new discoveries in these four different areas. But here's, here's the deal. Based upon the worldview I just outlined, he developed the scientific, what we would call modern scientific methodology, the idea of experimentation. Aristotle was against experimentation. He was against it. It was beneath him. Look, that, that's, what you, that's what you have slaves for. Slaves get their hands dirty. We philosophers, we don't get our hands dirty. So he would theorize about things, but would not do experimentation about things. Nor did Galen, uh, the one who is credited as being you know, probably the first physician. He wouldn't do empirical study either un unless, unless there was an animal that was gored and he could peer into the animal to look at the, at the organs inside the animal. Or if there was somebody who was gored in a contest in the Colosseum, and he could peer open and go, oh, okay, there, there's the liver and all that stuff. People would not do experimentation. Grosstest developed the methodology for doing uh, experimentation. He went back to the idea, there's a book of the scriptures, and there's a book of nature, and they've all got to come together. They're, they're, they're going to agree. The next guy is a guy by the name of Roger Bacon, 1214 to 1294. And Bacon took Grosstest's theories and he perfected him. Now, this guy was a Franciscan monk, thoroughly committed to Christ, and his brilliance was quickly recognized by Pope Clement IV, and the Pope ordered him to write about science. Now, you can order his book today on Amazon. I haven't done this, but I, I, did, I did check it out and, and see what it looked like. That book will run about 2,000 pages. Here's a guy who's writing... Back in, in that day, a two-volume, 2,000-page book to give to the Pope. Now, what is he saying in the book? Uh, he has recipes for making gunpowder. He's talking about how to make lenses for glasses. He talks about future inventions that will come to pass, all of which did come to pass. And where did his, science, his passion for science come from? It came from one area. He was passionate about the scriptures. How do you study the scriptures? You do observation, 
then you interpret what you've observed, and then you apply it. And Bacon was saying, look, we're going to apply Grosteste's scientific method, and we're going, to, we're going to observe, we're going to interpret, we're going to apply, and then we're going to correlate so that we develop a body of science. The next guy is a guy that you know, William of Ockham. What is he famous for? Occam's razor. So you look on any, uh, you know, any law program and somebody, some bright investigator is going to say, well, Occam's razor, you know, it tells you to take the most simplified idea about things. Well, why did Occam develop his famous razor? Well, it's, it's, it's because the, um, the worldview about astronomy at the time was that the planets moved because there were little pushers in the heavens. And these little pushers would push the planets along. And each of the planets had little spirits who were pushing the planets. And, and Occam said, that's kind of a complex way of thinking about it. That's got to be something sim more simple. The Occam said, well, wait, if, if, if space is a vacuum, they knew it was a vacuum. If space is a vacuum, you don't need little pushers because space is a frictionless environment and the the heavenly bodies are just going to continue to go in that frictionless environment. That's Occam's, Occam's razor. Where did Occam's passion for science come from? Occam was a Franciscan monk. Occam was steeped in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Occam also wrote widely on theology, writing a treatise in the Lord's Supper that Martin Luther picked up and said, this is what I believe. Martin Luther was saying, Occam's razor. Going to apply to the Lord's Supper. That's not what he said, but uh, it had a positive impact on his thinking. Uh, the next guy is Nicholas Copernicus, 1473 to 1543. You probably understand a little bit more about him. He was born in Poland. After his father died, he was reared by a Catholic priest. He was steeped in the Judeo-Christian worldview. He studied medicine and theology. He became a canon in the cathedral of Frauenburg in East Prussia. But his friends were most, mostly Lutheran, which was a little bit dicey in those days to have a bunch of Lutheran friends and, and be, you know, be a Catholic. And so what was he known for? He became famous for the one who introduced us to the sun-centered solar system. It's not the earth at the center, but it's the sun at the center of the solar system. Now, a lot of historians will say, yep, see, the church persecuted Copernicus. They said, you know, he's screwing up, screwing with our, messing around with our science. Uh, with, with our scriptures, with his science, totally false. Uh, the Lutheran prince, Duke Albrecht, paid for the publication of Copernicus's work. A Lutheran theologian arranged for its printing. A Lutheran mat mathematician supervised the printing. And the body of Clark Christ at large was immediately passionate about Copernicus's work. Um, now, were there some who said, uh, this is kind of different than what we... Yeah, there were. But the body of Christ at large was pretty passionate about this. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I could give you examples of many other scientists. But let me take you to one more. One more. Sir Isaac Newton, the guy who, you know, did, made so many incredible advances. Here's what Newton said. If I have been able to see farther than others, it was because I stood on the shoulders of of giants. Well, who were those giants? Those giants were all followers of Christ. 
many of whom were, were simultaneously monks and pastors and scientists at the same time. Those are the, sh- those are the giants upon whose shoulders uh, Isaac Newton stood. And Newton was a, a very a strong, a strongly committed follower of Christ. He had some kind of off ideas on some things, but he was a strong follower of Christ. So what happened since then? Well, Rodney Stark uh, de- determined that he would put together a list of all the major scientists between Copernicus and the year 1700. And he wanted to chart it out. And so here's what he charted out. He came up with 57, uh, 52 scientists, and he, he asked the question, okay, um, not what denomination were they in, were they Catholic or Protestant, but were they really devout Christians or were they kind of conventional Christians or were they skeptical of religion? Of the 52 major scientists that he studied, 31 were devout Christians, 20 were conventional Christians, only one was skeptical of, of, of religion. For instance, Robert Boyle gave charitable donations to Bible translations. Isaac Newton wrote extensively on theology. Johannes Kepler studied the Bible to try to ascertain the date of creation. So why? Why did all this happen? Why was Christianity so foundational to the rise of science? Well, go back to Alfred North Whitehead. The scientific movement came from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God conceived as with the personal energy of Jehovah and with the rationality of a Greek philosopher. Every detail of creation was supervised and ordered. The search into nature could only result in the vindication of faith in rationality. And what did that go back to? I went back to, uh, I think, Josh's favorite theologian, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, who championed the idea of faith and reason. Now, does this mean that China did not come up with some great things? Oh, they did. They certainly did. But they weren't capitalized upon because of the worldview inherent in China when these things were discovered. Uh, Does that mean Islamic countries did not make contributions? Oh, they most certainly did make some wonderful contributions. The problem was, at the time, they felt that doing scientific experimentation interfered with Allah's ability to be free. Because only Allah is really free to do what He wants to do. We're not free, according to their, their, their worldview. So if I'm doing scientific studies and I come up with scientific laws, I have limited Allah from doing what he can do. And that went against uh, their theology, at least, at least their theology early on at the time. And so you have a guy like uh, Johannes Kepler who says this, in fi- this is a this is, uh, brilliant scientist and mathematician and astronomer, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover rational order and harmony imposed on it by God in which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Here's a guy who had a very easy time simultaneously saying, I love the God of the universe. He'll say things like this. And I love studying math. Now, I was searching for a quote by Johannes Kepler. So I got out my copy of the great books of the Western world. And I I spent about 10 minutes looking at what Kepler did. I'm thinking, I'm lost. 
this guy is flat out amazing in terms of his science and then, and then how he explains it. The guy, the guy was incredible, brilliant, but the basis for it was his relationship with Christ. Now, here's the final question. Final question is, okay, so who are some prominent scientists of faith today who are championing their faith in Christ and championing science at the same time? Well, I'll give you the first. This is a guy named John Lennox at the University of Oxford. Um, uh, on two different occasions, I've had the privilege of going to Oxford and taking summer school classes where John Lennox was probably the, uh, well, he was the, the, the main speaker at a bunch of these classes. Lennox is a very, very accomplished mathematician. This is just one of the books that he's, that he's read. He is also a thoroughly committed follower of Christ and a very powerful speaker and has done a lot of debates with Richard Dawkins Sam Harris, uh, and, some, and some others, uh, quite a guy, a mathematician who is unashamedly committed to joining together his science and his faith uh, in Christ. Here's another guy, Francis Collins, who headed up the Genome Project, um, and he has been interviewed many, many times about what he believes about faith and about science. He's currently the director of the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute. He wrote a book called The Language of God. Uh, how did Collins come to Christ? Here's what he said, quote, as an atheist evolving into agnosticism and seeking answers to whether or not belief in God is potentially rational, my life was turned upside down 35 years ago by reading, guess who? C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Collins is quite clear about Augustine's two-book thesis. He said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, beautiful. That attitude goes directly back to guys like Roger Bacon and, and others. Or how about Guillermo Gonzalez, Ball State University, uh, caused a firestorm when he printed the book called The, the Privileged Planet where he said, it, it seems as if the location of planet Earth is in the exact precise location where the universe can be studied. And he said, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making any conclusions about that. I'm just saying it looks as if our, our planet is exactly where it should be if, if someone wanted the universe to be studied. He is, that, that book is a great book. Uh, here's another, Michael Behe at Lehi. Uh, he, uh, boy, he is, he has endured such abuse. He came up with the idea called irreducible complexity and that certain things are irreducibly com complex. The eye, for instance, is irreducibly complex. How do you have a genetic mutation that creates the eye? What happens first, the eye slit or the optic nerve? Or, you know, how do you, how do you get incredible complexity out of evolution? It seems as if certain org systems have to come into existence at the same time. Well, um, he has been abused in the scientific community, and yet he keeps writing, he keeps publishing, and he has some fabulous things to say about, about design. Here's another author, Alan Sandage. He's deceased now. But here's what Sandage said. It was my science that drove me to the conclusion 
that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It is only through the supernatural that I can understand the mystery of science. There's a guy by the name of John Polkinghorne who at Cambridge University. The guy was a, was a um, uh, particle physicist. And through his, his study of particle physics, he saw design in the universe. And he, he came to Christ and he determined he was going to become a pastor because he was so confident in the nature of God. Here's, what, here's, here's one of the quotes that he, he took out of Jeremiah to, to show how science and scriptures in his mind came right together. God says, thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of David. What's God claiming there? Astonishing. What he's claiming is, I have created the heavens and the earth. I have created the universe. And my covenant with my people is as sure and as fixed as my created order is. A remarkable, astonishing statement. Why are so many scientists coming to Christ? Well, what I heard from John Lennox is this. Oxford University, 2005. He said, physicists at Oxford are finding things in subatomic physics that make them realize there must be design behind the universe. There must be design. And he says, privately, they will come to me and they will say, I can't, can't say this in my department, but he said, they, 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 will, they will say to him, how do you explain what we're seeing? How do you explain it? We know that the ancient scientists like Bacon and Copernicus and Kepler and Newton explained it through God. John Lennox, how do, how do you explain it? And Lennox has had the opportunity of leading many people to Christ because he's a scientist who sees the scientific evidence, brings the scriptures and science together, and worships the infinite personal God. That's what he calls us, that's what God calls us to do. Love his scriptures love his scriptures, and love his other book, the book of nature, not be afraid of that book, bring them together and say, Lord, I love you, the God of the universe. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, we bow before you this morning and just we just say to you, Lord, you are truly amazing, amazing. You're the one, Lord, who metaphorically flung those galaxies out into outer space. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful, Lord. You're the one, Lord, who creates a similar structure with the electron revolving around the nucleus of the atom. You're an amazing, amazing God. We thank you that we see you in the scriptures. We thank you that we see you in science. We thank you we have two books with which to worship you. In Christ's name, amen.